Good morning, Grace. It's good to be back. Excited to be back with you guys. Hey, I want to just start by uh, recognizing just the good work uh, that was done while I was gone for the last three weeks. I tuned in to all of the services on the web stream, and uh, the preaching was awesome. I just thought Norflat and uh, how about that new guy, Gerald? He did great. And uh, Bryce last week, just, I really just thought they just knocked the ball out of the park with the preaching. And uh, I thought the worship was awesome. It just, I was so proud to just be in our condo and listening to the services and just really um, proud of what we did. And you know, I'm, I'm very aware of how talented our people are. Um, we saw some of that talent today, but what just makes me the most, yeah, amen. But really what makes me uh, more excited is just, I know, who, I know the people. And they are all chasing after Jesus. And they're all trying to make the greatest connection they can with the Spirit. And what they brought on Sundays in the last few weeks is just what God was stirring in them. And that's a pretty powerful thing. So thank you to all of you that had a role in making Sundays happen for the last three weeks. We should uh, thank them with a round of applause. So we're going to take a little bit of a slight detour from our study of Luke today. Um, I'm going to get back to Luke chapter 8 next week, so if you want to be reading ahead, Luke 8 would be a good place for you to be reading throughout the week. That's where we'll be. But today, I want to talk about something that I just feel like the Lord has pressed on my heart throughout the time uh, that Meg and I are away. I want to talk about worship. So when I say the word worship, the question I want to ask you is, what comes to mind? How would you define worship? My hope is that this morning as we talk about this, that God would open your mind or open your heart and maybe expand or give you a more robust understanding of worship. So grab your Bibles, turn to John, the Gospel of John, fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 4. We're going to read verses 6 through 26, and what I want to do as you're looking is kind of give you a little bit of context, because context matters when we study the Word of God. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going on. Jesus, along with his entourage of folks, are traveling through the, the, the area of Samaria, which is pretty uncommon. So they were going from Judea to Galilee, and typically when a Jewish person would do that, they would go by way of Jericho. They would go a long ways out of their way, which to us doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But when you consider their walking, to go miles and miles out of your way is, is making a statement of how much they detested going through. And the reason they would do that is because they didn't want to have any kind of interaction with the Samaritan people. They didn't want to have an accidental encounter with one of these Samaritans. So they would walk all the way around Samaria. I want to give you just a little bit of the context for where this, this controversy or where this hostility really started. So if you have time and at some point you want to go back and you look at 2 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 17, you'll read about an Assyrian king. And the Assyrian king comes into Samaria and he conquers Samaria. And what he does is he takes all of the Jews that lived in Samaria uh, hostage. He takes them back to Assyria and he transplants them into Assyria. They're, they're exiles in Assyria. And in their place, he takes Assyrian people and he places them in Samaria. They become an occupied country, basically. He gives them their houses. He gives them their farms. He gives them their, all of what they have. Their possessions become the possessions of the Assyrians. And that was a pretty common practice in, in those days. But the story gets kind of crazy if you read it because these lions start to attack these Assyrian people who are living in Samaria. 
And so they think, well, maybe it's because we don't worship the God of this land. So they send word to the king, and the king, in an effort to keep the lions from attacking him, says, well, let's send one of the priests. So the, they've taken this priest uh, exile, and now they say, you're going to go back to Samaria, and you're going to teach them about the God of the land of Israel. The priest goes back, and what they end up doing, which I think is fascinating, is they kind of adopt just enough faith in God, just enough religion to stop the lions from attacking them. So it's not a total surrender to the, to the Jewish ways. It's just enough so that the lions stop attacking. So what ends up happening is they end up having this like sort of, but not really Jewish faith. It's, it's, and so that, that just adds to the complication. So why do I say all that? Because when you read the New Testament and you see Samaritan, when you read about the good Samaritan, it's good for you to have all that context because what you have here is extreme racial tension. We can relate to racial tension, can't we? But here we have extreme racial and religious tension and people who want nothing to do with, any, with each other. And that's what makes the story of the Good Samaritan so controversial because who's the hero of the story besides God? It's the Samaritans. Samaritans were bad people. They're people who occupied a country. They're people who don't worship God the right way. So, so people would go all the way around. But here we have Jesus and, and his people going through Samaria. His companions are, are going through and they stop at the sacred spot. And they encounter, or I should say Jesus encounters this woman. We saw it last week too. It's a, it's a woman who has a rough reputation, an irreligious woman. And they begin this really amazing dialogue that we're going to read about. What I want you to do this morning is I want you to engage your imagination. I want you to feel the heat. I want you to think about walking for hours and hours, and up and down steep terrain, the dust, you're hungry, you're thirsty, and the story unfolds. John 4, starting in verse 6. It says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weary as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means it was noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and said to her, Give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now we know why. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but everyone who, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one that you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Verse 23 says, But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, and he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Don't miss this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me pray for us. So Lord, I ask this morning that the word of God would change our lives, that it would open our hearts and our minds to something new. I pray that we would each have an encounter with you this morning that would leave a lasting imprint on every aspect of our lives. I pray that you would change us from the inside out. Lord, our prayer this morning is the same as our prayer last week and the prayer of the week before that. I pray that we would leave different than we came because we interacted with the living God. Amen? So once again, we, we see Jesus, and he's breaking all of the rules of society. He's not doing what's considered acceptable behavior. He's in a place that he's not supposed to be. He's alone in that place, which really wasn't a good thing. And then he, he's having a conversation with a woman, which, which really wasn't acceptable either. But in this case, it's a Samaritan woman, so that makes it even less acceptable. And not only was she a Samaritan woman, but she was kind of a woman with a bad reputation. She was a woman of the world, if you will. So, so here Jesus is breaking all of what is considered socially acceptable. We saw this last week as well. He's not acting the way a religious leader is supposed to act. The thing I love about this story is as we, as we read through it, we see that Jesus knows who she is. Jesus knows about her past. He knows all about her. He knows her heritage, her ethnicity. She, he knows her sin. Yet Jesus is not only willing to engage her, not only has a desire to move into a relational connection with her, but he has this offer of this amazing gift of eternal life. That's all of our story. You know that, right? That Jesus knows us, but he sees past our stuff, and he still has something amazing that he's offering to us in this thing called the eternal life. So Jesus begins this dialogue with her, and he says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. And I think for me, as I read this story and thought about it this week, I'm pretty sure that the, the woman was first of all surprised, but I think she was probably a little bit disgusted by Jesus asking. My guess is she's experienced racial prejudice. She's experienced being oppressed by the Jewish people. She wasn't really all that keen on a Jewish man talking to her. So she's kind of like talking back to him, but she's, she's feeling a, a sense of what in the world are you doing talking to me? What does she say? How can... How is it that a Jew, how is it that a Jew could ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And Jesus what does what Jesus does so well. He takes this moment in time and he makes it a teachable moment. He's not only willing to engage with her, but, but he takes this moment to explain something pretty profound and talk to her about this amazing gift that God has for him, for her. He says, if you knew who I was... If you ask me, if you ask God, he would give you living water. And she has no idea what he's talking about. 
Because when he says living water, what she thinks about is moving water. So in the ancient world and in that time, the, the phrase living water meant moving water. The, there's a thing called a mikvah, which is where they would, would baptize people. That had to be moving, living water so that it wouldn't become stagnant. So living water meant moving water. So it would be a spring. It would be a stream. It would be uh, any kind of area where, it's, where, where the water moves on its own. When I was a young man, we used to go up to a, a cabin in Mayo, up north in Michigan, and it had an artesian well. You know what an artesian well is? But they'd cap the artesian well, and 24 hours a day, seven days a week, water would just come out of that well. It was living water, right? And so we would go to the cabin. We never had to carry water. We never get, it was super convenient because this water, by God's design, was coming up and flowing. No electricity, no pump. It's just a living water. So you get the idea of living water. So think about that day and age, right? So you had to walk a long ways, you had to draw water in buckets out of a well. You had to fill big containers. You had to carry those containers back to your house. If you wanted to take a bath, if you wanted to do your dishes, if you wanted to cook, all of the water that you used, you had to carry with you. Pretty inconvenient. Something we take for granted, right? We not only have water that comes out of a faucet, but it's water that we can bathe in and we can drink in, right? So we, we have all these conveniences that we take for granted. And so she hears living water and she thinks about maybe what she's seen by the Roman Empire. They've built aqueducts by this time, and they're actually having water moved from high areas down to the houses. And if you were rich enough, you could actually have water come right to you in your home. And so imagine what she's thinking. This is a pretty big convenience, but she's also pretty skeptical. I mean, here's this guy. He's just sitting by the well. How is he going to do this? So in verse 12, she says, Are you greater than Jacob, the patriarch, Jacob, the one who actually made the well? In verse 13, Jesus says to everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. That would be pretty good. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then Jesus sort of tips his hand. He, he lets her know that he's not any ordinary guy, right? So he, he says to her, I know that you've had five husbands, and I know that the person you're with is, is not your husband. In spite of everything I know, I'm still offering you this amazing water. Now, here's what I love about the story. At this point, the woman acknowledges that she knows something different about Jesus, right? What does she say? She says, I can see that you're a prophet. But then she does this thing that I think we're all guilty of. She decides to change the subject. She decides it would be much better rather than talking about me and my past and my heart stuff, let's talk about religion, Right, we all do this. We don't want to get to the real heart issues, so we're going to talk about worship styles. We're going to talk about what's wrong with the church. We're going to find all kinds of things to talk about as, a, as opposed to talking about our hearts and sharing what's going on in our hearts. But Jesus has gotten to a pretty sensitive subject with her. And she says, well, I don't want to talk about that, so let's talk about where to worship. So we worship here on this mountain, and you say that we're supposed to worship over there. What she thinks she's doing is changing the subject. But in reality, she isn't changing the subject at all. There is a connection, a relationship between living water and worship. Jesus responds to this attempt to change the subject with the words that really have captured my thoughts and my imagination for the last three weeks. This is what I thought about most of the time when we were on vacation. He says these words in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is here when true Worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Everything is changed. Jesus says, your, your question doesn't even matter anymore. 
Because where you worship, it doesn't matter. It's not about the place. It's about the person going forward. The time is now when true worshipers, and I found myself saying to God over the last few weeks, I want to be a true worshiper. I want to have a church full of people. I want us as a congregation to be true worshipers. He says the time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So what I want to do with the time remaining is I want to answer three questions. What is worship? What is worship? And if I answer what is worship, then I think we're going to answer the question, what is, true, what is a true worshiper? What does it mean to worship in spirit? And what does it mean to worship in truth? I know I asked you this already, but I'm going to ask you again. What comes to mind when you hear the word worship? I put this question out on Facebook, and it's one of the, probably the, the strongest responses I've ever gotten to a, a Facebook question, by the way. If you want to participate in the, some of the pre-sermon sort of thoughts going through my head, I'd love for you to friend me on Facebook. It's just a get, great way for us to get some dialogue, and you'll know kind of where I'm going and some of the things I'm thinking about. But you, you had hundreds of answers. It was really quite phenomenal to read through. And I would say for the vast majority, maybe even all of them, your answers were right. But I would also say for the, the majority of them, your, your answers were kind of limited, that you all touched on different aspects of worship. So if when I say worship, you think of what we just did, you think of what, what John just led us, that singing and, and, and offering praises back to God, the truth is, yes, that is worship, but that's just an element or a part of worship. That's not the totality of worship. If when you hear the word worship, you think of the Sunday morning gathering, that's worship, but it's just a part of worship. Again, I want to say it again. What I'm hoping today is that by the time we're done, you just have a, a broader understanding, a more robust understanding of what is worship. One of the authors I read this week said, worship is defining is defined by the priorities we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on that list of priorities. And I like this. True worship is about God and where he is in your list of priorities. I think that's absolutely true, but I also think that's not enough. Worship is understanding who God is. Worship is understanding all God has done. Worship is understanding all that God is doing. Worship is about holding a baby. Holding a little baby in your hands and and seeing God's creativity, seeing how God breathed life into that baby at conception, the miracle of a baby ought to inspire us to think about how amazing and wonderful and creative God is to, to hold that baby can lead us to a place of worship. One of the things that happened when we were in Grand Haven uh, is a huge storm rolled in, and maybe the, one of the biggest storms I'd seen um, live, if you will, or in person, and the lake just became tumultuous, incredibly huge waves crashing over the pier. It was just, it was so awe-inspiring. It was so, uh, in some ways, intimidating to see. But in that moment, as we stood there at the base of the pier looking out, seeing water shoot up, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet in the air as it would hit the pier. It was just spectacular, but it was just this reminder of God's power and God's beauty and God's creativity that's all displayed in worship. Now, I could have worshiped creation, but instead God took me to a place of worshiping the creator that made this, this expanse and showed this beauty. That's a, a moment of worship. So what is worship? 
This is a definition that I would like you to hold on. Worship is an active, appropriate response to the invitations of God in your life. The key words here in this definition are active, appropriate response. Worship is an active, appropriate response to the invitations of God in your life. What I want you to hear this morning is worship is much, much, much more than music. It's more than singing. It's more than Sunday mornings. Worship is that active, appropriate response to the everyday. God is a God of invitation. God is always inviting you to more. God is always inviting you to something. And the more you learn to pay attention to the invitations of God, and the more you get what God is calling you to, the more you will be worshiping God. So let me give you a couple of examples of this. God inviting and you responding that, that you may not have ever thought of worship, but I can tell you it's worship. So, so God gives you a burden for some type of social inequity, some type of, of burden is laid on you. So maybe it's human trafficking. And we've talked a lot about human trafficking here. And we have the, the pipes that we support in India and work that we're doing here to help with human trafficking. But maybe it just, it becomes something you can't sleep at night because God has laid a burden on you about human trafficking. Or maybe it's about the broken foster care system. Some of you are fired up about stepping into that and helping out. Or maybe it's just this whole idea of racial tension and the the issues of black-white that face America and that's facing Detroit, and you can't think about anything else. God has laid a burden on you about something. When you allow God to breathe that into you and it becomes something that causes you to do something about it, when you step into it and you do justice, that's worship. Because you're responding to the invitation, the burden, the, the, the passion that God has given you. When you're listening to the Spirit and you've been walking with God for a little while and, and you realize there's a habit in your life that really shouldn't be there, you're doing something that, that, that God is showing you, the Spirit is showing you, you know, this really isn't good, this doesn't honor me, this doesn't please me, it's a habit that you should break. And when you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to stop doing that, I'm going to give that back to you, I'm no longer going to go to that thing that you're showing me, that's worship. Because God is inviting you into more of him, and he's saying, this is in the way. So you're responding to the invitation of God in your life to experience him more and more and more. When you give, when you hear the promptings of God to give generously, and you say, look, I'm going to be a generous giver with my time and my talents and my treasures, that's worship. God calls somebody to serve in missions world. That's worship. Listening to the promptings and the invitations of God and then, and then responding and actively and appropriately, that's worship. Jesus says the time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. So we got to answer the question, what does it mean to worship in spirit? And, and again, this is kind of a twofold answer to this question. The, the first thing is, he says it, he says God is spirit, so we have to worship in spirit. It means that God is doing something in our inner being. There is this prompting, and we've already really talked about it, but where the spirit of God is, is pushing in and, and giving and whispering in your ear, and you're hearing this prompting from God to move, the invitations of God comes through the spirit connection that we have. We are spirit people, God is spirit, and to worship, we have to worship in spirit. It's not about us just figuring out the the process or some kind of a formula. It's about being spirit-led, right? So that's the first part of it. But when we read the word spirit in the the scriptures, what we got to understand, what the writer is usually talking about is with everything that you have. 
So when we read something like Jesus was grieved in spirit, what they're saying is Jesus was grieved to his very core. They didn't compartmentalize the way we do. We talk about our minds are one thing and our physical health is one thing and our spirit is another thing. No, for the ancient world, your spirit was everything. Your spirit is what made you do what you do. Your spirit is what made you think the way you think. So when you're in Deuteronomy 6 and it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, really what they're saying is love the Lord your God with your spirit with everything that you have. So to worship the Lord in spirit is to worship with this spirit-infused thing that's going on, the Holy Spirit in us, and it's to worship into, with everything that we have. So what does it mean to worship in truth? Again, I think the answer to this is twofold. First, we have to know what the truth is. You can't really worship God if you don't know who God is. Or if you think you know who, who God is, but you're wrong, then you're not really worshiping God, are you? So there's this need for us to have, have a right understanding. Basically, what this means is your theology matters. Because you can't worship in truth if what you're worshiping isn't truth. I know that's a little redundant, but I don't know any other way to say it. We have to understand who God is and, and all that God has done. We have, we have to understand his character. We have to understand his attributes. We have to understand what God is up to. So, so, so we lean into the, the scriptures because it's this beautiful letter written to us that reveals who God is to us. In those stories, we find a deeper and deeper understanding of who God is. We lean into the theologians that have come before us in their writings, and we discover that these great thinkers and how they have helped us to understand who God is. We lean into the Spirit of God who reveals truth to us, and we learn more and more about who God is, and, and our worship is worship in truth. The more we understand who God is, the more we're worshiping in truth. Now, I tried to think of an example of how this could go the other way, and the best example I could think of was dating. So I don't know if you all remember dating. I didn't mean that to be personal. Sorry. Um, but I don't remember. So, so you would ask somebody out, and, and in that first date, you'd be with them, and you'd just be, like, enamored by them. I wouldn't say you're worshiping them, but you're definitely just drawn in. They're so amazing, this person. But after a date or two, not so much, right? You start to see their awards. They start to, certain things they do just really annoy you. That's how we know this isn't the one I'm supposed to get married to. Whatever it is, Meg used to call it the syndrome. But anyway, this, something would take place and you would, it's just not what you thought it was because now you're kind of learning the truth about that person. So you're no longer compelled necessarily to be enamored by them. But the beauty is, this isn't how it works with God. The more you know about God, the more you understand who God really is, the more you really connect and know the God of the universe who loves you beyond your wildest imagination. You can't help but worship him more and love him more because you know who he is and you know all that he's done. You don't fall out of love when you get to know who God really is. We got to know God as a triune God. We sang about it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one. Almost impossible to wrap our minds around, but, but just that knowledge of that. Knowing, listen to this, knowing God exists in perfect community. God exists in community and love. And that community and love is so compelling, so awesome that God didn't want to keep it to himself. And he said, we're going to invite you into this 
relational thing that we have is the triune God. And so he sends his son, Jesus, who comes to earth, the the son of God, part of the triune God comes and he is incarnate. He becomes man. We see his manness in this passage because it says he's weary. He gets tired like we get tired. He gets weary. He's at the well because he's fully man and fully God. Don't take that for granted. The more you understand the God of the universe, it says Jesus who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing for you, taking on the very form of a servant, but not just a servant, a servant who was willing to go to the cross and die for you. Look, the more you know that, the more you understand that, the more you let your heart and mind sink into the truth of all that God did for you, the more it compels you towards worship. Worshiping in truth is knowing the truth of how amazing and spectacular and awe-inspiring God is. So on one hand, to worship in truth is to have a right understanding of God, his character, his attributes, who he is. But there is a second part of this. To worship in truth means you have to be honest about who you are. Church, I got to tell you, I, I think this is critical for us. I think it's critical for the church in general. And I think it's, in my opinion, one of the biggest misses of the evangelical church. It's what I experienced growing up. This is why at Grace Community Church, one of our core values is authenticity. We're going to be honest about who we really are. We're going to create a safe place where we can just be honest about what we really feel. When I was young, I I grew up in a church, and I would call it a praise the Lord church. They said praise the Lord to everything. That was really the greeting. Hi, how are you? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Came in every kind of way, which isn't a bad thing. It's it's hard for me even to say that. I feel like I'm being sacrilegious saying it, but I can tell you what ended up happening is we had a church full of people with painted on smiles who said praise. You could come in and say, look, my leg just fell off and my dog died. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? And and there's something right about that because we are supposed to continue to praise the Lord, but it became just sort of a platitude. It wasn't really meaning anything. And sometimes when somebody expresses pain to you, the right answer is, I'm sorry. Or maybe that sounds really hard. Sometimes it's not saying anything. Sometimes it's just listening to someone who's going through a difficult season. So we got to be careful not to paint on the platitudes and just say, praise the Lord. we got to create a place where we can be honest about who we are. Look, I know what Romans 8 says, right? All things work together for good. Those are called according to God's purposes. I, I know that, but do you know that that can be a pretty hurtful passage to throw at somebody when they're in the midst of deep sorrow and pain? It feels like a slap in the face. You can believe that for them. You can pray that for them. But when you quote that passage of scripture as a way of trying to pull somebody out of a difficult situation, it's like a hard slap in the face. We need to create a place where we can be honest about who we are and how we feel. Did you know that the primary role of counseling is to get you to talk about how you feel? If you've ever been to a counselor, I have. No shame in that. It's a good thing. We have an amazing counseling center right here on our campus, Christian Counseling. I would encourage all of you to participate in that. It's just it's something we all should do. But sometimes it's annoying because really all they ever say to me is, so how do you feel? So how does that make you feel? So how do you really feel? Right? You wonder if they get all that education just to learn how to ask how you feel 32 different ways. But there's a purpose behind that. Because when we express how we really feel, get this, something actually happens in our brain. 
We move things from the non-dominant, usually the right side of our brain, to the dominant process dealing with understanding side of our brain. So the guy that runs the counseling center, his name is Tim Hogan. He's got a PhD. He's way smarter than I'll ever be. And uh, Tim Hogan said this to me when we were talking about this. He said, this idea of talking about how I really feel, listen to this, he said, and some of you will understand this, and some of you will be like me, and just, it's a good quote. It says, this is moving from direct feeling, which is often chaotic, understand that, to naming of feelings, which is reduces the activity in the anxiety centers of the limbic system. What he's telling you is, is there's something actually going on when we express how we feel. Honestly, he also wrote in there, this is a good thing, knowing that I probably didn't understand what he said, so he wanted to make sure I knew it was a, a good thing. But he also said it doesn't work unless we're honest about how we feel, unless we can truly express how we feel. But here's my point. If we come to God and we worship in truth and we express to God honestly how we feel, God uses that expression of honesty to help us to rise above our circumstances and still be in a place where we can praise God. But if we bury it, if we're, not a, if we're too ashamed to say it or we're too embarrassed to say it or we, we're just unwilling to say it, then we're not going to be worshiping in truth and we can't rise above those circumstances. If we're not willing to be honest not just with God, but with one another, then we are not worshiping in truth. Authenticity is critical to true worship. I want to read a psalm for you, and I love this psalm because I love how raw it is. I don't want you to look it up. It's Psalm 13. The writer of the psalm, just listen to how gritty the psalm is. Listen to the pain that the writer is writing down. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Look, some people would get kicked out of the church if they came in and said that, right? God has forgotten me. I feel like God has forgotten me forever. Well, no way, but here's the, here's the psalmist writing. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? I have sorrow in my heart all day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain in this. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Verse 5, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountiful with me. Do you see that we can still worship and be honest about how we can feel? Can you see that in this psalm? There's, there's deep emotion. The church has forgotten how to lament. I want us to be a church infused with joy. We talk about that a lot. I want us to be a joyful people. But if we are not honest about how we feel, then that joy that we present is just an act. It's just a big show. But if we can be honest as a church and truly lament what's going on, if we can be honest about the things that are going on in our lives, our hurts, our pains, our disappointments, God enters into that and, and we still become infused with joy and we rise above those circumstances. I want to show you this slide because I think it's profound. This, these are the Psalms of lament. Now, the Psalms, they're great worship. They're all about worship. Look at the Psalms. Every one of these is a chapter on lament. You have individual and community laments. You have special occasion laments. These are the number of psalms where the person expresses something that's raw and difficult back to God. And almost every case comes back to, but nevertheless, but nevertheless, you're God. 
Nevertheless, I know you love me. We see it in Psalm 13. Your steadfast love, it holds me together. It's the very thing that John was talking about as he was talking about the song that he wrote. Look at verse 23 again. I think this is my favorite part of this passage. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to have favorite parts, but this is the one. Second part of verse 23, it says, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I want to be what the Father is seeking. I want you to be what God is looking for. Isn't that a powerful picture? You know, Second Chronicles tells us that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro, looking for people whose hearts are fully devoted to him so he can show himself strong on their behalf. You know what they're talking about? They talk about worshiping in spirit and truth, hearts fully devoted, fully committed to God. Why? So that God can show up strong on your behalf. How many of you need God to show up strong on your behalf? How many of you are feeling the need for God? So one of the questions I think I have to answer is, so then what is Sunday all about? What is this gathering? We tell you all the time that it's important for you to gather. It's one of our six essentials that you gather with us. Why is this so important? I'm glad you asked. This is where we practice. You get that? This isn't where we really go and do worship. This is where we practice. This is where we get our theology straight. This is where you hear the word of God unpacked and you learn who God really is, not just in what I'm saying or what Norfleet is saying or what Gerald is saying, but in the words that we sing, you, you begin to get your theology right. But this is also where we practice coming in, even when our hearts are heavy and still praising God. But this is practice. Worship is really what happens out there. Worship is really what you're supposed to do the other six days a week. We're supposed to just be creating a safe place for you to work on your drills, to work on your, your you know, get all your blocking and tackling right so that when we walk out of these doors, we can be true worshipers. I don't want you to miss this because it's in the story, but what's at stake? Living water. When we allow the spirit of God to move in us and through us, when we appropriately and, and respond to the movement and the invitations of God in our lives, living water wells up inside of us. Jesus says this, that he wants to give us living water. The story is a story of invitation. Jesus is inviting the woman at the well to something beyond her greatest imagination greater than her hopes or dreams could ever be. And God is still inviting us to the same thing, to experience living water. So maybe this morning you feel a bit dry. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And I found myself in the last week thinking, why am I thirsty? Why am I still thirsty? Why isn't this passage more about who I am? It's because I need to learn to worship. I need to learn to be a true worshiper. I need to learn to get rid of the things that are distracting me from the things of God so that I can experience the water that God is promising to never be thirsty again. How many of you are thirsty this morning? So I'm going to pray, and we're going to close the service. And this is what I would like to do. I'd just like to tell you, uh, the front is open. There's a prayer team here, and they are great at what they do, and they would love to pray with you and for you. Uh, if you just want to come down and kneel at the front and pray by yourself, that's okay too. But 
but don't sneak out of here. If you felt that nudge, don't change the subject. Receive the invitation that God has for you this morning. So Lord, I just ask that you would help us to be true worshipers. More and more and more, I pray that you would just pour out your spirit in this place, that we would experience living waters welling up inside of us, overflowing, touching our neighbors, touching our friends. Help us to be people of spirit. Help us to be true worshipers, worshiping in spirit and truth. Lord, I pray that you would nudge the people that need to come down here to come. Give them an added measure of courage to just come and to pray, to receive what you have for them. Help us to receive living waters. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you. You have a great Sunday. If you want to come down and pray, we'd love to see you.